This is the Gathering Ottawa's Message Podcast, and we've got another great message for you. For information about us, check out thegatheringottawa.com. To get connected, email info at thegatheringottawa.com. And just know that at The Gathering, we exist to connect people to the love of Jesus. So let's get right to it. consider yourself to be a bit of a movie buff. You love a good movie. few people. Okay. What are some of your favorites? Let's talk about this. Shout out some of your favorites at me. What are some of your favorite movies? Fight Club. Ah, that's a good one. Yeah. Jesus of Nazareth. Is that like the old Jesus movie? Oh, cool. With Robert Paul. Okay, I don't know that I remember that one. I'm sure I've seen it, but yeah, that's great. The Notebook. Ah, good romantic movie. You're you're a softie, right? That's the Ryan Gosling one with the signs and stuff, yeah. Elf, yeah, that's a good Christmas movie. It's a favorite. We're going to be watching that one before we know it, right? It's going to be Christmas time before we know it. Remember the Titans. Oh, man, doesn't that tug at your heartstrings? It's got football in it. You know, deal, like, it's just an incredible story. It deals with, with race issues, powerful story. Any of your Hallmark movie? <laughs> I don't know why, Bob, I... Is that real? <laughs> three, daughters. three daughters, yes. You've been forced to watch a few. Shawshank, classic. Braveheart, yeah, that's been one of my favorites too over the years. Popcorn? Oh, Top Gun. <laughs> You're a little young for Top Gun, though, aren't you? That that movie was made well before your time, so well done for watching something from the 80s. The new one was pretty amazing, right? That was pretty cool. The Kingdom of Heaven. Kingdom of Heaven. I don't, you'll fill me in. Okay, all right. All right. Well, I know we could keep going and just talk about movies all morning, but for me... Um, I'm a big Christopher Nolan fan. Anyone out there a big Christopher Nolan fan? The director, Christopher Nolan. How many of you saw Oppenheimer this summer? Pretty incredible story, isn't it? Hard to wrap your head around that actually having happened. Um, basically, for me, though, anything Christopher Nolan does, I enjoy watching. The Dark Knight trilogy from, like, the mid-2000s is probably my favorite of all time. Those three movies, just love them, can watch them anytime. I grew up as a Batman fan as a kid and, and just loved the way that he told that story. Um, the Bourne series, that's not a Christopher Nolan series, but the Bourne series, I don't know what it is, you know, with Matt Damon and all, like, I just love those movies. Anytime they're on TV, not that we really watch TV anymore, but do you understand what I'm saying? Anytime they've been on TV, doesn't matter if it's in the middle of the movie towards the end, I'm like, I gotta watch this movie. They are fantastic. I'm just a sucker, I guess, for any sort of espionage, action, CIA type of thriller. And the Bourne series certainly scratches that itch. But whatever your favorite movie or series, TV series even, may be, one thing is true, right? And that is that we all love a good story. We all love a good story. We are story people, why we collectively spend billions of dollars 
on going to the movies and on Netflix and Disney Plus and Amazon Prime subscriptions. And it's why we listen to audiobooks and podcasts that tell a good story. And it's why we read novels. And it's not just because we like the act of reading, it's because we like stories. Right? We are story people. Let me ask you, have you ever started watching a movie or a TV show in the middle and with little to no context tried to figure out what was going on? Maybe you walked into a room and everyone was already halfway through a movie and you sat down and started watching with them. Or maybe a movie you've always wanted to watch was on TV and you decided to watch midway through. You picked it up from the middle without knowing who's who and what they're trying to do. You ever started watching a story, a movie from the middle? It can be a little confusing, right? To jump into a story midstream, especially when we have no context or backstory for the overall plot. It can be hard to know what's going on. Well, in some ways, this is the dynamic that we find ourselves in today as it relates to the story of God and the story of the church. It's like we've jumped in midstream to a story that's been unfolding for thousands of years and that continues to unfold around us today. But if we aren't careful to take a step back and to work to understand the context of the story, to understand the nuance, the backstory, the arc of the story, the direction of the story, we aren't careful to look at it from a higher level to understand what this story is all about, we'll never really fully be able to understand the role that the church, the role that you and I play within the story of God today. We're in this series called Life Together. It's a series all about the church and what it means to share in the life of Christ together as the people of God, as the church. If you've missed any of the last couple of weeks, we encourage you to go back on our YouTube page and to catch up. I'm not going to rehash them here tomorrow, but really would want you to check those out so that you are part of that conversation. But this morning, what I want to do is I want to start a conversation about the mission or the purpose of the church in the world. This will be a two-parter. We'll talk about this more next week as well. But today, as we launch into this conversation about the mission and the purpose that God has entrusted to the church— I want to start by taking a bit of a step back and looking at the larger story of God as laid out in the scriptures and where we, the church, the capital C church, fit into that story. And as a result, what our mission, what our purpose within the larger story that God is telling is, this story that we've kind of found ourselves having jumped into midstream. And to do that, I want to introduce a bit of a interesting tool, I think interesting tool to you, a framework, literary device, a tool for understanding narrative or story and how stories flow and fit together, including the story of God and the story of the Bible. The tool is called the monomythic cycle. How many of you have heard of this before or heard of some version of it? I knew, I saw Linda nodding. I was like, Linda might be the only one in our church who will be familiar with this tool. Uh, I have not 
heard of it either uh, until a number of years ago. Unless you're an English lit major or communications person like Linda is, you probably have no reason to know about it. The only reason I have some knowledge of this tool and cursory knowledge at that is because the church that I served at some years ago before coming to the gathering, uh, we stumbled upon this tool together as a pastoral team and realized that it was a great tool for understanding the story of the Bible and where the church fits into that story. And so we developed a bit of a curriculum that I taught to new attenders every month or so at our church just as a way to help people understand our context and where the church fits, again, within the story of God. So I want to share that with you here this morning. I want to look at the story of God, the story of the Bible, and where the church fits into that story so that we can have clarity around what our mission is as a church, where we fit into the larger story that God is telling in the world. But first, before we get to that, what is the monomythic cycle? Well, in short, this term, it speaks to a very predictable pattern or structure, an, an arc that almost every story follows. Mono, the word mono, of course, means one. Myth speaks to story or narrative, and cycle speaks to a pattern or structure, meaning the monomythic cycle is this framework for telling one unified story. In fact, all the stories we mentioned, all the movies we mentioned earlier, they all follow this pattern in some way, shape, or form. Let me explain. First, every good story, right, starts with what we might call the original ideal. The original ideal. In a Disney pr uh, princess movie, for example, this is the short once-upon-a-time moment at the beginning of the movie where everything is as it should be. In the Lord of the Rings, any Lord of the Rings fans out there? I'm surprised to not have heard that, or Star Wars, for that matter. In Lord of the Rings, right, it's Frodo, at the beginning of the movie, the beginning of The Fellowship of the Ring, in the Shire, partying with his friends, enjoying his life, happy as can be. It's the original ideal. Every story starts with an original ideal, even if it's just like 10 seconds. You see something at the beginning of a movie, of a story, that points to what life was like before things went sideways for people. Shortly after this, though, conflict of some kind emerges. Whether it's in the form of an evil queen or a poisoned apple, like in Snow White, or Frodo putting on that ring and summoning the dark uh, riders or horsemen, whatever they're called. It's that moment in the story, uh, in, a, in a movie, where conflict or, or pain or suffering is introduced. And, and the rest of the story becomes about trying to solve that conflict, trying to deal with that problem, trying to make that problem go away. Next, number three, we see conflict intensifying, which usually makes up the majority of any good story. It's like the middle hour to an hour and a half of the movie. It's where the plot thickens, there's twists and there's turns. We see the true character of the characters revealed within all those plot twists. And ultimately what we see is we see things going from bad to worse. Right? The, the conflict just seems to intensify. And at times it seems like there's just no way out. You ever watch a movie you're like, I don't know how on earth they could get out of this mess. That's that. Conflict intensifying. Which leads then to number four. And the surprising twist. 
which is when something happens that changes the entire trajectory of the story and a way out or a path forward emerges. For example, it's when Darth Vader says, Luke, I am your father. So I, I have a CPAP machine I wear at night. Uh, it happened like 20, sometimes I lean over to Kim and I just say, Luke, she doesn't like it in the middle of the night. But it's that moment in Star Wars, right? Where all of a sudden, like, oh, I, di- I didn't see that coming, and now the story makes more sense, and I see a way out. Or it's, it's when, in the sixth sense, right? When Bruce Willis's character realizes that he was dead the whole time. And I'm sorry if that's a spoiler for you, but that movie's been out for like 25 years, and if you haven't seen it by now, I don't know what to tell, <laughs> tell you. But it's that moment in the story, that surprising twist that occurs that you didn't really see coming, but that helps make sense of the story and provides a way out for the characters. Which leads us into uh, what's called an era of restoration. An era of restoration for the characters in the story. Whereas we now approach the end of the movie, or the end of the story, Everyone who's alive still is reunited, and the challenges, the the conflict of the story is resolved, goes away. And finally, number six, before the credits roll, a superior ideal is presented. And this is sometimes literally just the last ten seconds of a movie. Um, it's, It's when everything now seems even better than it did at the beginning. It's the happily ever after moment, which is usually better than the once, once upon a time moment from the beginning of the story. That, in a nutshell, very cursory version of it, is the monomythic cycle. This framework for telling one unified story that almost every story follows. This framework, believe it or not, actually is seen in the pages of Scripture as well. The the narrative of God, the story of God, the story of the Bible follows this pattern. It's almost like God created this pattern and that we discovered it. Let me talk through the story of God using the monomythic cycle to help us understand the context that we are in, the mission that the church plays within the broader story of God. The original ideal, God's original ideal for the world, is found in Genesis 1 and 2. With creation, creation, where God creates a good and perfect world. No sin, no evil, no sickness, no cancer, no death, no relational or family dysfunction, no drama, no natural disasters, no climate change, no mental illness, no COVID. No division about COVID. (laughs) None of it. Everything as it should be. Perfect harmony between God and man, man and one another, and man and creation. And as a result, man and woman, who the Bible says were created in God's image, in his likeness, to be like him, they get to experience perfect and whole relationships. Relationships unencumbered by sin and evil and death. Three relationships in particular that we see in Genesis 1 and 2 that are perfect. The first perfect relationship we see is relationship with God. Adam and Eve's relationship with God. As we see in Genesis 3 verse 8, we see Adam and Eve walking in the garden with God in the cool of the evening. Can you imagine what that would have been like? Whether or not that's literal or not, just having that kind of close 
intimate relationship with God where they could walk together in the garden. Amazing. Points to that level of intimacy that Adam and Eve had with God. Number two, they had perfect relationship with one another. Genesis 2 verse 25 talks about how they were naked and felt no shame. And that's not just, you know, nudity. We're not just talking about nudity here, but about like full transparency, vulnerability, being fully who you are with the other and not being ashamed of it one bit. They had perfect relationship with one another. But they also had a perfect relationship with creation as they were placed in the garden to take care of it. It's what God did. He, he placed them in the garden and, and commissioned them to tend to, the, to God's good creation, to the garden, and take care of it. This was God's original ideal for you and for me and for his world. Perfect intimacy with God, intimacy with one another, and intimacy, in a sense, with the world around us. Shalom, or wholeness, in every life. Sadly, that original ideal was short-lived, and conflict is then introduced to the story in Genesis 3 in what we often refer to as the fall. The fall. This is where Satan, represented by a talking snake, this crafty serpent, he approaches Adam and Eve, and he tempts them to eat the forbidden fruit, to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And in effect, in doing so, he tempts them to disobey God, and to become their own gods instead, where they would now get to determine for themselves what they believe to be good and evil and right and wrong and true and wise. The temptation was so strong that they gave in. And they ate from the tree, choosing independence from God instead of surrender to him. And sin and evil and death came into our world as a result resulting in widespread pain and devastation ever since. We see some of this devastation and pain right away in Genesis 3, don't we? With Adam and Eve hiding from God in the garden. Right away, that perfect relationship with God is fractured. They're hiding from God as he goes out looking for them, and they are hiding from him in shame. See them also hiding themselves from one Another, we're in shame. They realize they're naked and they aren't comfortable with that. And so they cover themselves with fig leaves. It represents broken relationship, shame. Now I can't trust my spouse. Now I can't trust other people. I have to hide my true self from others. And number three, we see a broken relationship between humanity and creation as well. Whereas a consequence to their sin, God declares the ground and all of creation as cursed as a result of their sin. And death and sickness and disease and conflict and poverty and injustice, racism, hatred, murder, evil of every kind is introduced to the story. And God's original ideal that we saw in Genesis 1 and 2, wholeness in him, is broken. Apostle Paul summed this up in Romans 5, verse 12, where he said this. He said, when Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death, so death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned. And we've been feeling the effects, the reality of sin and death and evil in our lives and in our world ever since, haven't we? The fall, where conflict is introduced to the story. Next, we see conflict intensifying 
throughout the story of Israel and really throughout the remainder of the Old Testament. See, things just go from bad to worse. Genesis 3, it's bad. Genesis 4, it gets even worse. There's a murder. Cain and Abel, story there. And from there on, throughout the rest of the Old Testament, you just see things going from bad to worse. And you're left going, like, how in the world are they going to get out of this mess? How is God going to solve this sin and evil and death problem in the world? And in Genesis 12, we're introduced to a man named Abram, or Abraham as we know him. God later changed his name to Abraham. We're introduced, Genesis 12, to Abram and Sarah, where we see God making this incredible promise, this covenant with Abram, promising him that he and his uh, aged wife would have a son. And that from their family, from this son, a great nation would be formed. Genesis 12, verse 2, here's what God said. He said, I will make you, Abram, into a great nation. And I will bless you and make you famous. And you will be a blessing to others. Or in other words, what God is saying to Abram is he's saying, this family of yours, it's going to turn into a nation, nation of Israel. And I'm going to use that nation, I'm going to use your family to rescue and redeem the world through it. I'm going to use your family to deal with the sin and death of evil problem once and for all. That was God's promise early on in the, early, in, the, in the Old Testament. His promise, his covenant with Abram. I'm going to use you and your family to solve the sin problem once and for all. But by the time we get to the end of the Old Testament, and I'm skipping over a few stories, but while we, when we get to the end of the Old Testament... What we see is that Abraham's family, this nation called Israel, it's torn in two, literally. And they're in captivity once again. Idolatry is running rampant throughout the nation. And in disobedience and rebellion against God, they've wandered away from him over and over and over again. And no one seems to know what to do about this problem. The priests... The judges, the kings, the prophets, the Moseses and Joshuas of the world, no one could figure it out. No one could set them straight. And we discover that the very people that God had set apart to bring his healing and his restoration and his redemption into the world through, the very people that God said, I'm going to use you to solve this sin problem once and for all, well, they were actually just as infected by sin and death and evil is everyone else. And the story of God has gone, it seems, from bad to worse. There's no way out. One constant thread, though, that we see throughout the Old Testament as Israel turns its back to God is we see God continuing to pursue them despite their rebellion, despite their obedience. He's a pursuing God, always going after him. And we see his pursuit of them in what's called the surprising twist. The surprising twist. Where just as you might have thought that God had given up on his people and that sin and death and evil were going to win out, the fullness of God in human flesh appears in the person of Jesus Christ. And in Matthew chapter 1, the very first chapter of the New Testament, Matthew opens his gospel, the story of Jesus with the genealogy. 
And he does this not because Matthew thinks genealogies are great ways to start books, because they're probably not the best way to start a book if you want your readers to pay attention and continue to read through it. But he does so, and starting with the genealogy, because he's trying to tell us that God hasn't moved on to a new story. It's the same story, and he's just carrying the old one now to completion. That's why Matthew starts this genealogy with Abraham. And he's saying, in a sense, you remember Abraham? Remember that story about Abraham? You remember the covenant that I made with Abraham and Sarah? Well, guess what? There is one from Abraham's family, a descendant of Abraham, who did come into the world to save the world, and his name is Jesus. And he is the fulfillment of every promise I have made, God has made to Israel and to the world. And then as we read through Matthew's gospel, Matthew again and again, he he just points back to the story of Israel and how Jesus fulfilled that story, reminding us it's all one story, right? One unified story. For example, just as Israel went down into Egypt, Jesus went down into Egypt as a refugee after he was born. And just as Israel wandered for 40 years in the desert, Jesus spent 40 days in the desert as well. And just as Adam and Eve were tempted by the enemy, so Jesus was tempted in the desert, although he did not give in. Just as Moses went up to a mountain to receive the Ten Commandments from God, to receive instruction from God on how they should live, so Jesus sat on a hillside of a mountain and taught people about the kingdom of God in his Sermon on the Mountain, gave them a new ethic. It's it's all God's way of saying it. This entire story in the Old Testament where you thought things couldn't get any worse than they were, it's all pointing to Jesus. And in Christ, God, he hasn't given up on the world, but still has a plan to redeem and restore and rescue it. Jesus walked this world. His message was clear as well. It's summarized in Matthew 4, verse 17. Where Matthew says that Jesus says that this was his message in summary. He says, repent of your sins. Or in other words, turn away from sin and death and evil and turn to God instead. Repent of your sins. Change your way of thinking and living and turn to God instead. Why? For the kingdom of heaven, which is life as God intended it to be, or the kingdom of God, it is near. Why? Because Jesus is near. Jesus has come to earth. God in the flesh has come to show us how to live and to save and to rescue and redeem us. He didn't just say this about the kingdom. He didn't just talk about the kingdom of God. But he illustrated it too, didn't he? He illustrated it by healing the sick and the blind and the lame. Saying, hey, in God's kingdom, where I am Lord, uh, there will be none of this. Sin and death and evil, it's not going to exist in my kingdom. And he spends time with the poor and the weak and the excluded, with sinners, saying, hey, in my kingdom, my ideal for the world, everyone has a chance to sit at the table of God. And he walked this world teaching about the kingdom and illustrating it with his miracles and with his example showing us that God's intention for the world, his original intent for our lives, is now available to us through the person of Jesus. 
if we would just bend the knee and surrender our lives to the Lordship of Jesus. And then, of course, this surprising twist, it culminates with Jesus going to the cross, right? Where instead of violently conquering his enemies, as Israel had attempted to do again and again throughout the Old Testament, Jesus lets his enemies kill him. Jesus, he dies for his enemies in love. He dies for you and for me. Scripture tells us that, hey, we were once God's enemies in our sin. And as Jesus went to the cross, he, he killed sin and death and evil with him on that cross, rising again three days later and conquering sin and death and evil once and for all. He provided a way out. That, in a nutshell, is the story of Jesus. This surprising Savior that Israel was not expecting, but needed. Surprising, the surprising twist in the story of God. They weren't expecting that kind of Savior. They were expecting a political hero, but they didn't get one. They got a different kind of Savior instead. Now, you ready? Here's where we, the church, come into the story. It's in the era of restoration. The era of restoration. Where in Acts 1 verse 8, after Jesus rose from the dead, and right before he ascended into heaven, he said this to his disciples, who would go on to form the church. He said to them these words. He said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses telling people about me everywhere in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, and Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth, which is exactly what happened when on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, we've talked about this in our study through the book of Acts, right? The Holy Spirit came. Peter declared Jesus, proclaimed Jesus. Jesus was, was preached. And thousands of people surrendered their lives to Jesus as a result. And the church was born. The church being, listen, the church being now God's new chosen people, a new Israel of sorts, as God himself empowers the people of God by his Holy Spirit to go into the world and to bring about his healing and his redemption and his restoration. This new kingdom movement, this new restorative force called the church, where we live with Jesus as Lord and live into God's ideal for humanity as we live our lives and go about our daily lives as the church. Not, not just the Sunday service, not just some programs during the week. It's the people of God, the redeemed, Holy Spirit-empowered people of God living on mission to bring about his restoration into the world everywhere we go. And we see the early church living this out in a whole host of ways throughout the book of Acts, right? We've, as I mentioned, been journeying through Acts for some time. We've seen story after story of them living into the restoration and redemption and rescue of God as they go. But the best description, I think, in the entire book of Acts, the best summary of the way that they lived their lives is found in Acts 2, verses 42 through to 47, which Bob just read for us a few moments ago. We'll read it again here for you. It says this, all the believers, the, the church, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. 
I love that. Luke, the author of Acts, he, he right away talks about the kind of life that they lived, their lifestyle, not the programs they participated in, right? There weren't programs, church programs to go to. It was the kind of life that they engaged in, where they were devoted to the apostles' teaching, meaning not just that they listened to long sermons, but they actually oriented their life around that teaching and instruction. And they spent time in fellowship with one another, sharing in meals. They're in each other's lives. They, they shared the Lord's Supper regularly, and they prayed together. What a beautiful image of the church being the church, living into God's original vision for creation. Perfect relationship with God, one another, and our world. Verse 43, And a deep sense of awe came over them all. The apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders as God's way of saying the ministry of Jesus is continuing on now through these people, through the church. And all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. Not just for an hour on Sundays or an hour and a half on Sundays, but daily. They met together in one place and they shared all their possessions. Incredible generosity. Verse 45, the generosity gets even greater. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. My goodness, do you imagine if we as a church were like, I'm going to sell my house and donate the proceeds to that organization that's doing kingdom work or to meet a need in our church or to bless a person. That's what they did. Incredible generosity. They didn't just fit it in if they had any money left, but they sacrificed for the sake of others. And they worshiped together at the temple each day. We think it's hard to get here on Sundays sometimes, don't we? Every day they're at the temple, went to church daily. They met in homes for the Lord's Supper. Kind of like what we're trying to do through our home church ministry, being in each other's lives. And they shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people, meaning the community around them because of how they lived their lives. They loved the church. They're like, these people, there's something different about them. We, we, we love them and we're glad they're in our community. And each day then, Luke says, the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved as the church grew and reached more and more people with the love of Jesus. You see what they're, what they're doing here. They're, they're living into God's original ideal for creation. Right? right relationship with God. We see that as they worshiped God in the temple daily. They, they took their relationship with God so very seriously. Right relationship with one another. We see that in the way that they engaged in each other's lives, doing church in the home, being involved in each other's lives, living generously with one another. And right relationship with the world around them. We see this expressed in the way that they cared for the poor and the needy amongst them. The church here, more than a program, more than a Sunday service, but it was a restorative kingdom force in the world for God. And 2,000 years later, the call on the church today within this broader story of God, it remains the same. And that call is this. It's to be a spirit-empowered, Jesus-proclaiming, restorative force. Whereas the body of Christ, which is what we are, the body of of Christ, we live to be the hands and feet of Jesus everywhere we go. Bob said that earlier, didn't he? To live to be the hands and feet of Jesus, to express the good news of Jesus everywhere we go, pushing back against the powers of darkness and sin and death and evil everywhere we go, bearing witness to Jesus in both word and deed in our daily lives. 
for us at the gathering, we express our mission this way. We say we exist to connect people to the love of Jesus so that they would follow Jesus. It's our way of saying we, we exist to push back the darkness in our world, to invite people into right relationship with God through Christ, to follow Jesus, to surrender their life to Jesus, to the Lordship of Jesus, and to commit to being with Jesus, becoming like Jesus, and doing what he said. Just the way we express that, the way we try to live into it, but it's all the same. We exist as the church. The capital C church exists to push back the powers of darkness and the very powers of hell in our world. It does not exist for itself It does not exist just so that our kids can go to kids' church on Sunday or so that we can feel like we belong and are included. All those things are wonderful and important. We exist for a hurting world that has been devastated by sin and death and evil. And God, by his spirit, wants to use us to do something about that. We are a restorative force for God's kingdom. Story of God here. It's not over just yet. There's one more. There's the ending, right? The superior ideal, which is still yet to come. And what is the superior ideal in God's story? Well, it's the new creation. The new creation, renewed creation. When Jesus returns and makes everything right again, making a new heavens, a new earth here on earth, and restoring all of creation to God's original design, only better. Some of us think God's going to return one day and destroy this world and take us out somewhere else. It's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches God's plan for the God loves the world. And he's going to redeem and restore all of creation. Doing away with sin and death and evil once and for all. So we can live in this renewed creation. This renewed world together. Experiencing God's ideal for us without sin and death and evil pulling us away from it. Revelation 21 verse 4 describes that day, the day that Jesus returns like this. It says that he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. No more sin, death, or evil. For all these things are gone forever. Think about that for a moment. I don't know um, in your story, your life right now, um, where you've been experiencing tears in your eyes as, as of late. Death, sorrow, crying, pain. It's going to be gone one day when Jesus returns and judges sin and death and evil once and for all, does away with it, and invites those of us who are in Christ into this new creation with him. Like, I know that that sounds like a bit of a fairy tale because it's hard to imagine that one day this could happen. But this is the story that we're living. That's the trajectory of our story. The return of Christ when everything is made right. And that is our hope as followers of Jesus. Not that we can make things right because we can't. We just make things worse like Israel did. But Jesus isn't done with this world yet. He is going to return and make all things new. And as followers of Jesus, as kingdom people who long for that day, we're called to live into that reality now to partner with him towards that day, to say, how can I be a kingdom person, uh, part of this restorative force called the church? We know one day Jesus is going to come and, and finish the deal. He's going to make everything right. But man, we want to get the world as prepared as we can for him when he returns. We want to do our best by the power of the Holy Spirit to do away with things like poverty wherever we see it. To, 
to support marriages that are struggling because there's conflict there that's decimating families. To pray for our lost neighbors who are so, like they don't even know how to make sense of their life because they don't know Jesus. They're struggling, drowning in sin, death, evil. They don't know how to even talk about it. They're just overwhelmed by all the tragedies of life and of sin. We partner with God by His Spirit to bring about His healing and redemption to a hurting world that so desperately needs it. This is the story of the Bible and the story of God, the story of the church. This is the story we've kind of jumped into midstream, right? The story that continues to unfold around us today. It's not over yet. We're going to talk more next week about what all this means for us as a church continue to talk about the mission and purpose of the church. But let me leave you with a question as we wrap up. As we think about the church, which you and I are a part of together, the church as a restorative force, here's a question for you. Where is God calling you and us as a church to push back the darkness in our world? So I promise you, if you're a follower of Jesus, man, he wants to use you to do that. You and I, we don't exist for ourselves, right? He's placed us in this world, in the city of Ottawa, for a purpose. He has a plan to use us to push back the powers of darkness and the very powers of hell in our world if we would let him. So where is God calling you and us together as a church to push back the darkness in the world? Where is there suffering around you right now? Pain, sadness, sin, evil, poverty, injustice, division, hatred, devastation in the world. And how can you live to bring about God's healing and restoration to those areas? I tell you, the cross, Jesus going on the cross, it's not just some historical event, you know, just part of God's plan for salvation happened thousands of years ago, and that's it. Something that we can just wear around our neck or, you know, hang on a, on a church building. Or, the cross is more than that. God is still through the cross redeeming, restoring, saving people today. The power of the Spirit is still at work through Jesus and what he accomplished on the cross and the empty tomb today. And when we forget that, when we live our lives just for ourselves, think, thinking only of our own families, our own problems, our own issues, Instead of others, we're missing out on the power of the cross in our life. So where is God calling you and us as a church to push back the darkness in our world? In a way, this is what our anchor cause discernment process has been all about. We heard a bit about that this morning. Identifying food insecurity as an issue in our neighborhood, a surprising issue in our neighborhood. We're seeing suffering, pain, evil in a sense. Families that have been devastated, broken because of poverty and other you know, issues. They're saying, God, could you use us maybe to do something about that? Or maybe you placed us here in Riverside South in the south end of the city for a reason. What might you want to do in us and through us to make a difference in this way? It's just one way. You, as you go about your daily life, go to your workplace, engage with your families. Man, there are so many ways we're thinking about pushing back the darkness, but we can't do it on our own. We need the power of the Spirit. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for um, this story that we find ourselves in. Hard story to summarize in 40 or 45 minutes, but 
A beautiful story, nonetheless. A story of healing and redemption and rescue. We thank you that you've invited us to be a part of it as a restorative force in the world. Not just living for ourselves, being a church that exists for ourselves, but a church of people that exist for the world around us. Bringing about your healing and restoration for those who so desperately need it. And we know that healing and restoration can be found in no one else other than Jesus. Not just in good works, not just in good deeds, not just in being good people, but in pointing people to Jesus and in embodying Jesus in the way that we live, being the hands and feet of Jesus everywhere we go. And so I pray for my brothers and sisters, I pray for our church collectively, that you would speak to each and every one of us about what that looks like in our daily lives, in our families, in our workplaces, but also collectively as a church in this neighborhood where you've positioned us to push back the darkness, to push back the very powers of hell that you said would not prevail against the church. So we trust you, we declare you as our leader, as our Lord, and we ask that you'd use us in the way that you've designed us to be used, as a restorative force. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. for tuning in we're back next week with another great message don't forget to check out our website thegatheringottawa.com and tune in next week to the gathering ottawa's message podcast